Hello captives and captive friends and welcome to episode 71 of the Global Captive Podcast supported by legacy specialists R&Q and hosted by me Richard Kutcher. I have just returned from a fantastic trip to Burlington, Vermont where I attended the first in-person VCA conference since 2019. We recorded a lot of fresh content as promised including GCP shorts with Marsh, Spring and the state of Vermont. There was some big breaking personnel changes on the eve of the conference too so we managed to catch up with some of those p krantz has left brown and brown to join alliance so in next week's gcp short we will hear from brown and brown's new captive practice leader matt takamine and colleague jason flatsbeard while we also recorded an exclusive interview with outgoing delaware captive director steve kinyon on his 13 years in the role and his next move But this first episode post-VCIA is all about David Provost, who will be retiring as Deputy Commissioner for Captive Insurance after 21 years at the state of Vermont. I will be grilling Dave on the landmark events that took place during two decades of captive regulation. That includes free hard markets, 9-11, the Great Recession, the Enron collapse, and a few other hopefully never heard before anecdotes along the way. We will also hear from Tim Padavese, President and CEO of Ophthalmic Mutual Insurance Company, a risk retention group that actually outdates Dave, as well as some tributes from current and former colleagues. But first, let's get into that first half of our exit interview with Dave Provost. So, David, welcome back onto the Global Captive Podcast for your exit interview. <laughs> Thank you. My exit interview. All right. Yes. Am I going somewhere? This isn't your official. I, I'm sure that the commissioner or the, what, what do you have, presidents of Vermont, governors <laughs> of Vermont will do your official exit interview. This is my one on behalf of the listeners of the Global Captive Podcast. So, uh, Dave, we heard a bit in a recent uh, GCP short we did with you and Sandy about, obviously, your decision to, to step down, but I really want to drill into it and your history, particularly in, in the state as well over the past 21 years so before you joined the state of Vermont you had you had already spent more than 10 years working in captive management and consulting and tell us a little bit about that background in captives prior to becoming a regulator what were some of the the common the common themes or drivers of of captive topics in 1990s yeah well you know a lot of it was just like today Um, in fact I think if you took my portfolio of captives from the 90s it would look very similar to a lot of captives nowadays Uh, one was a group of Catholic hospitals We still do a lot of that, a lot of medical malpractice. Uh, I had a risk retention group that was essentially a single parent risk retention group that was formed for uh, providing proof of insurance for closure, post-closure policies. I had a group of banks that got together for their DNO insurance. Oh, wow. So DNO is not an ether. <laughs> exactly, exactly what you need now. What happened with those guys, though, is that they, uh, they eventually started buying each other up. And okay. every, every time they found a, a potential new member, somebody would say, well, that's a good bank. I'll buy them. I'm not going to insure them. I'll, <laughs> I'll buy them instead. And they eventually all wound up merging and, and it became a group of one. Um, so they, they, a very few of those banks exist as separate entities now. And then I had a series of single-parent captives like anybody else might that uh, wrote work comp, GL, and auto. Um, and all for the same reasons now as you have now. Uh, insurance, 
were for what they needed and wanted wasn't available and affordable. Yeah, and in many ways, the commercial market hasn't fixed that problem. People no. are still using captives, more, using them more than ever yep. before. Yep, and I, I think anytime you get a swing, a dip in the market, or uh, you know, any anytime there's a hardening, I think the market loses a piece yep. permanently to the captive market. And maybe that's the way it should be. You know, use captives for your uh, what you want to retain, and use the reinsurance market or the traditional market for what you want to transfer, and it works pretty well together most of the time. So what originally piqued your interest then in, in captives at that time and, and also in the regulatory side of captives and leading you to joining the department? Yeah, food and friends. A, c- a couple of guys I went to college with called me up. I was working at the, at the bank, uh, that, uh, the local bank in Vermont, the Chittenden Bank at the time. Had a great job. It was my first suit and tie job, so mom and dad were very proud. But a couple of guys called me up that I went to college with and said, we'll take you out to lunch. Um, and talk about capture insurance with you. Nobody at the bank ever took you out to lunch. Um, <laughs> they don't have fun in banking. Insurance was fun. And so I talked to them, and, and I still didn't really have an idea of what was going on, but it sounded interesting. So I, I went and uh, joined Johnson & Higgins yep. uh, and learned about insurance brokers and captives and uh, eventually you know, just really got into it and really enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. At the bank, some of my clients were captive insurance companies, so I knew they existed. Uh, and we had actually had a, a session at the bank of all the officers when the Risk Retention Act came out in 86 and the tax reform in 86 uh, because they said we're, we're going to get more of these captive insurance customers. Uh, so we had a little bit of background about what they were, but you still, until you get down to the nitty gritty, you still really have no idea what a captive is or what it does. But that's how I got into it. Um, and I enjoyed it. I worked for several captive managers. And then I just, uh, I thought it would be interesting to see what the other side was like, to try out regulation. You know, I had been uh, in enough new captive meetings with Len as a, as a captive manager to understand what he was asking most of the time, most of the same questions about how does this work and what are you doing. But I you know, always wanted to learn more. And, and uh, going into the regulation side was really, there was a lot more to learn. And obviously, Len, I imagine a great mentor for you. As you mentioned, obviously, as we said, joined the regulatory side of captives in 2001. And that was obviously a very interesting time for the commercial insurance market because of the tragic events of 9-11. That was a a loss event and and a disruptor for the insurance market as well. How did that market environment, insurance market environment, impact kind of the captive formation uh, conversations and and activity? Yeah, well, I, I was a brand new examiner that point so I didn't get involved directly in, in most of them but I was in the same building as Len so I could hear most of the most of the talking that was going on Len was not a quiet guy so <laughs> but we, we did uh, you know things just got so busy in 2002 and 2003 we, we licensed over 70 captives a year wow. because of that we even had a number of shelf captives we had one manager said let's just form 20 corporations and we'll name them XYZ ABC and when we have a when we're ready then we'll come in and, and put a captive in it and change the name but we we'd actually got th- that process that part of the process completed in advance with at least one manager that, that I know of um, so it was just super busy and you know it, it hardened the market again so you had all the same uh, typical captive reasons for forming a captive of hard market pricing and availability and now you had terrorism insurance too yeah. Um, so you had some captives formed specifically for that, but a lot of captives added it to their program. And it, it just, since, since then, I, you know, that was part of the rules. Is you, as an insurance company, you had to offer terrorism insurance. Yeah. Uh, and so if you were affronted, you had, to deal, you had to deal with that if you had a captive already. 
the uh, whole ABC XYZ captives, could, could, would that happen nowadays? Uh, it could, yeah. if, if somebody wanted to. And it's frankly, the formation process now is so fast, especially the, the incorporation part. That's that's all pretty automatic. So it, it, we could do it, but I don't think it'd be necessary. That's that's it really isn't a drag anymore. Yeah, um, You can do it automatically. You can do it online, frankly. I think one of the most fascinating discussions I've had with you previously, I think in my previous role at Captive Review, I'm not sure how much we talked about it on the record, but we definitely discussed it, is actually the Enron scandal yep. and, and subsequent... Uh, captive fallout is a nice little captive angle i think is a good a good thing to explore so i often cite this with my limited knowledge of it when people ask me what happens uh, to a captive if and its funds and liabilities and assets when the parent group ends up filing for bankruptcy can you talk us through a little bit about what happened there regarding the enron captive because i believe at one point the assets of the captive were under threat but vermont was able to kind of ring fence it and say well no this is this is kind of spoken for is that correct? Right, right. Uh, it's very unusual one for a single parent captive to have to go through the insolvency process. Normally, it's a very orderly process because the parent knows it's going bankrupt and things are going down the tubes, and it can deal with the captive in an orderly way and close, you know, reassume the liabilities, close the captive down do whatever it has to do and, and just do things very quietly without involving the courts. Um, and it's, that's the way it should be. But we've had a few cases like Enron where the insolvency happened overnight. Yeah. Uh, and Enron wasn't overnight. We had one where uh, we had a bank owned captive and the bank regulator seized the bank. Well, we have to go seize the captive too. So it's, it's a process uh, and it works the same way whether it's a single parent like Enron or a risk retention group. We go to the court and we say this company's insolvent with Enron. Uh, Sandy was working on that at the time, and she she basically wrote wrote off the intercompany balance, and declared the company insolvent. And then we go to the court and say we need to seize this company because it's insolvent. And then we hand it over to a liquidator, and the first job of the liquidator is to garner the assets, stop the bleeding, garner the assets, and then get the company under control. In this case, it was pretty under control anyhow. It's not like uh, it didn't have a whole bunch of policyholders, single parent captives. So. But that's exactly what they do. The liquidator garners the assets that are there, ring fences them. They are bankruptcy remote is what it's called. We have a different bankruptcy process for insurance companies than we do for regular corporations. In that case, the, the liquidator was able to pay off all the claims uh, over time and uh, actually had a little bit of money left over at the end to hand back to Enron. So that, uh, you know, that happened just as I was starting with the department mm. and was finished just as I was taking over from Len. Uh, so Sandy was directly involved with that. Becky Aitchison, who works with us now, was the captive manager yeah. of the Enron captive. So she was involved with it for the whole eight or nine years it took to run it off. So essentially just became a, a captive in runoff and was able to play any what workers' comp claims or whatever, those kind of longer tail claims that would come Exactly. Up. So it, it, and its primary losses, reserves in that case, were workers' comp. And so they were collateralized. You know, they, they were either fronted or otherwise secured. So uh, they were all able to be, be paid off in an orderly fashion. And that's what it's all about, is making sure that we can pay things off. If we couldn't pay them all off, 
then we we hold off on making payment or we yep. pay we pay a, a portion until we know what the final number is and then we can distribute it so that everybody feels the same pain but in this case as it's designed a workers comp captive should be able to to pay all of its claims. So uh, another kind of landmark event during your time was the global financial crisis at the end, other end of the decade, uh, kind of 2008-9. Yeah. Uh, obviously that, again, led to a, a hardening of the commercial market for very different reasons than obviously 9-11. What were the, the conversations taking place then regarding captives and at that time? And what was was there another spike in formations you saw? Yeah, well, that, that happened right after I got appointed to the deputy's <laughs> job. It was not my fault. You crashed the market. But it, it it was a completely different environment. It was uh, it was a moment of a full stop. People didn't know what the investment market was doing. It was it was a little it was wonky. I don't know how else to put it. It was a little bit crazy. So things came to a stop. We stopped licensing captives. They just weren't applying. Uh, so 2008, we only licensed 16 captives. It was already a slow year, but it just really came to a full stop, uh, primarily because of the uncertainty in the investment market. So we worked with a lot of companies in that because uh, their portfolios took a nosedive. And so if your assets all of a sudden are worth half what they were yesterday, well, guess what? You probably lost a great deal of your surplus at the same time. Yeah. And you're technically insolvent. But you were holding Fortune 500 bonds the value behind those bonds didn't disappear overnight. You know, IBM didn't close down, Pepsi didn't close down. You had a bond that was going to pay interest. It's just that the market value was questionable because you couldn't sell anything. There was no market. So we worked with companies to, to deal with that, either to change the valuation of their bonds or investments or just give them time. You know, we, we know this will work out. We know that these things didn't disappear. This will this too will come to an end. Yeah. And so let's just give it time. We don't need to take any action. And then, yes, it turned right around. After that low year, we went right back to a pace of 25 to 35 captives a year. And with one exception of another slow year of 18 caps, 16 or 18 captives, it's been growing. And the last couple of years has really picked up. Yeah. And th- this year, again, is ahead of last year. Yeah. So it, it after 2008, it just picked right up and has been steady, steady increase. And you call it a day after free hard market cycles then? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just a free to get yeah. through. Well, we'll be back with Dave in the second half, but now let's hear from Tim Padavese, president and CEO of Omic Mutual Insurance Company, a risk retention group and one of the oldest domiciled in Vermont. Tim ends by sharing his own insight on Dave Provost, but begins by telling us about Omic and its captive profile. The company just celebrates 35th anniversary, so to give you a real quick snapshot, we insure ophthalmologists as an RRG uh, throughout the United States. We are in every state. The RRG vehicle is perfect for a company like ours. It allows us to go into very small states. We file with Vermont. But the history of OMIC really goes back 1986, the Risk Retention Act was passed, and Right after the Risk Retention Act was passed, there were about 400 ophthalmologists that went to the American Academy of Ophthalmology and said, we are getting non-renewed again. We need help. They looked into the law, and within six months, they were able to put a, do a very comprehensive feasibility study, which included a partner a reinsurance partner that today, 35 years later, is still the reinsurance partner of the company. They had an actuary group that helped put together the actuarial study. That group 
is still 35 years later is still our actuary. So that's how it came to be. And it's an amazing company, though. It really is. It's financially, we're probably one of the strongest insurance companies out there. Whether you're an RRG or whether a, a just a regular captive, uh, we're as strong as anyone out there. Particularly our European listeners will be less familiar with the, the, the concept of risk retention groups. I mean, obviously, from those dates you give me there, you must be one of the first groups of RRGs that got set up after the, the Risk Retention Act was passed. So just, just tell our listeners, so risk retention groups, they can only write liability. Is that correct? Do you have that to focus on liability risks? In our case, risk retention groups can only write liability lines. And in our case, we really just focus on one single line, and that is medical professional liability or med mal, as some people refer to it. So as a company, we write just under 6,000 ophthalmologists across the country, which is about a 60% market share of what is available out there in the United States. So risk retention, as a company, I would have to file in every single state but a risk retention act allows you to domicile in one state. And in our case, it's Vermont. Now, we didn't start in Vermont. 35 years ago, we went to another state when this was all developing and this state said, we are really committed to risk retention. We understand it. We're really gonna invest in it. Well, five years into the company, we realized they're not investing. So. We did a nationwide search and we looked at the domicile states. Vermont stood out. And I can tell you that 30 years later, having been in Vermont now for 30 years, the company around 35 years, it was the right decision for us. And so it allows us to to write in every state, but file and follow the laws of Vermont. Fantastic. So, um, also, obviously, single-parent captives, normally we, 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 understand, we know they're self, we know they're often outsourced to captive management. There might be a risk or insurance professional internally at the group who uh, kind of decides how the captive is used and where it's used in the program. But you have, uh, you have quite a significant uh, staff, don't you, to run, run this uh, risk retention group. Tell us a bit about the operating model of the RRG. So, it's interesting. Uh, when we started out, we didn't have. We had a staff of one. And then that staff of one hired an MGA to do claims. We had a board made up of ophthalmologists. We had to outsource our financing, our investments. Uh, we had to you know, pull resources externally. But over the first couple of years, we started seeing, okay, we can start hiring a staff. And within seven years, we had we had gone completely independent and at that point we had a full staff of folks now we still have some consultants that we work with Uh, actuary is still an outsource uh, and we do that today uh, for a lot of reasons there's good governance reasons to have that separate but the company looked at what we could handle internally and after say uh, after five years we really started moving away from the MGA because we had brought people in uh, that were very good claims. And those are some of the things that we differentiate ourselves with. Our claims handling, our risk management, those everyone in the company, and we have 51 employees, all pulling in the same direction, only doing ophthalmology. And so that's, that's a big difference with us and other people in the medical malpractice or medical professional liability space. 
So how do you get the the word out there to the community that you that you provide services to? What how does the distribution work? Because you you out there you you making calls, Tim? Are you knocking on doors? How how does that work? Well, I'm surely not afraid to <laughs> to knock on a door or two, but we have a sales team. We have five people that are dedicated to being out in the field working with groups and agencies. We also work through brokers. I will tell you a very dynamic thing happening in the medical professional liability space, except especially with uh, risk retention, or especially with ophthalmology, is that the brokers have really gotten involved through private equity. And so private equity has really moved into the space and has bought a number of practices. We have been able to show them the value of OMIC and we now write about 850 insured groups uh, in, in physicians through private equity firms. And four years ago, we had none. So it's a, it's a changing dynamic in our marketplace. And we're able to show, working with these brokers, the value of OMIC. Does that change the risk profile at all? You know, having the, these, these guys owned by private equity, does that change anything? Or is it just a, a different kind of relationship? It changes a little bit. The pooling of resources that happen on the private equity side, uh, there's more There's more concentrated training that we're able to do to risks that all of a sudden have 50 or even 100 ophthalmologists. But there's also the dynamic of pricing. We're no different than anyone else in the world. When you have a larger customer, they tend to push you a little bit harder on price. They tend to push you a little bit harder on services. But we think in the long run, that still is a win-win for everyone. So finally, obviously, we're talking here at VCIA. And one of the big topics this week has obviously been Dave Provost's final month in the job and and final conference in the job. Uh, You must have got to know Dave quite well over the years, having the the RRG here for 30 years and him being here for 20-odd years. Uh, I guess it would be nice to have a few words from you about what you think he's brought to the, the local industry here and, and the guests across the country. So Dave Provost is a name that's known throughout the insurance industry, not just captives. So Dave represents Vermont and represents, in essence, our company through the federal government. Uh, when he goes and speaks at national conferences, he has petitioned on our behalf, especially for our RRGs throughout the country. So D- Dave has been a real partner. And I will tell you that I think I coined the phrase. I don't, uh, I, maybe someone else wants to take credit for it, but I've always said that the, the Vermont, they're firm, but they're fair. And that's one thing that when we have sat down with Dave Provost and Sandy Bickelson over the years, uh, and really before that, when Derek uh, was there, we would sit down and we'd say, here's our proposal, and we would go through it, and they would raise some very good issues and questions, and we would have an understanding, and ultimately, we came to the right decision. So that's all you want in a state that you want the support but you also want guidance. And I think that's important for our board as well. Paul, R&Q has worked with some very high profile captive owners over the past 13 years. And the majority of those companies remain owners of sophisticated captives today. I think that demonstrates that transferring legacy liabilities is all part of the natural life cycle of a captive, don't you think? 
Yes, that's right, Richard. As businesses evolve over time, it makes sense that their insurance needs change and as a result, the profile of the captive and its role within the group will change as well. We have worked with captives owned by companies such as AstraZeneca, General Electric, Lufthansa and Unilever, who all have sophisticated captive operations and felt the need to restructure or shift their priorities. Offloading a legacy captive or a portfolio of liabilities can often be the most efficient way to repurpose a captive or free up much needed capital for distribution or new lines of business. Thank you, Paul. Well, if you want more information on R&Q, then visit their friend of the podcast page on the globalcaptivepodcast.com website or follow the links in the episode show notes. So thank you to Tim for that insight in one of the oldest and largest RRGs in the United States. Before we join Dave again, I thought it'd be nice to hear about the man from those who know him best and have worked with him over the past 21 years. First, you'll hear from Derek White, the man who interviewed Dave for the job 21 years ago. Then we are joined by former VCIA president, Rich Smith, Dan Toll, who was at the state when Dave joined and worked together for many, many years, Dan's successor, Ian Davis, and then current colleague, and who will be the new director of captive insurance under Sandy Biggleson, Christine Brown. Derek White, you actually uh, kind of hired Dave. You interviewed Dave for the job when he first joined uh, the department, what, 20 odd years ago? 20 odd years ago. I was chief examiner, I think back then, uh, working for Len Cross, of course, and we needed more examiners and we had a chance to do it. And I think Dave applied or we went after him. I can't remember, but he was perfect. Coming from captain management background, he knew it. And if you know anything about hiring, personality is kind of key. So first of all, he had an awesome personality. And second, he had the uh, technology to back it up. And any suggestions when you hired him that he might go on to have this long, distinguished career and ultimately get the job, top job within the, within the captive department? Not really. Um, <laughs> although I can see looking back now, it was just a natural progression. I mean, he moved from like a... What was the assistant chief examiner right up to deputy? So, I mean, that was a huge step, uh, but we were all behind it. I mean, he was the perfect choice. He can speak, um, very knowledgeable, and he knows how to listen. And that's an important thing for regulators, knowing how to listen? Vermont regulators, at least, and captive regulators. That's what people are used to. Um, in the history of Vermont, it's been 40 years. They've only had three heads of captives, Ed Meehan, Len Krauss, and Dave Provost. So icons and all people that were very smart but knew how to listen. And as I always say, if somebody, if Dave said no to a plan, you better listen because he had a good reason that he said no. That's really interesting. And so just final, any, any particular uh, happy memories of Dave, whether when you worked together or from when you've gone back into the, into the kind of captive management side? Bishka, back then it was called Bishka, Bank Insurance Securities Healthcare, now it's the DFR. Uh, they have an internal Halloween party every year. And back under Commissioner Costell, they took it very, very seriously. Dave had a full head of hair. He came wow. in dressed as Mr. Clean. So he had the cotton eyebrows and he had shaved his head for the costume and he hasn't grown it back since. Wow. Well, I think both of us can take some advice from that. Exactly. I think. <laughs> Dave was Vermont for many years. I mean, he really epitomized why Vermont was the gold standard. And, you know, and you get a little nervous when someone like Dave you know, leaves the position. But when you got people like Sandy Bigglestone and Christine Brown and Dan Pedersen, I mean, the, the state has such a deep and wide bench uh, of people coming up. It makes Dave almost irrelevant. Matter of fact, don't let the, <laughs> don't let the door hit you on the way out, Dave. We don't really care about you anymore. But, uh, you know, Dave was awesome to work with. He was uh, took over right before I became president of VCIA. So even though he had been in the department for a number of years, he and I kind of started on the same 
wavelength. And, and then, then, you know, I, I, I left. I stepped down uh, earlier this year and, and called me. I was in Massachusetts visiting some friends, and I get this call from Dave, and he's like, I'm going to step down. I'm going to retire. Do you want me to do it? before the conference or after the conference? And I said, Dave, do not do it before the conference. People will want to see you. People will want to, you know, one more time with Dave Provost. So Dan, you were actually working for the state of Vermont when, when Dave was appointing, appointed deputy commissioner. What's kind of your, your memory of that time and, and how do you assess his impact? Well, first of all, um, when Dave took over, he was filling the shoes of the great Len Krause, and those were unbelievably big shoes to fill. And I think what was so impressive is Dave wasn't overwhelmed by it. He uh, was comfortable in it. He was very good to say, I don't know the answer, but he was also confident at the same time. He was an incredible pleasure to work with. A lot of this being the public face of captives was very new to him, and we had a lot of fun making him be very good at it, and uh, was very proud of him and how he's grown into the role, and he's now, along with the great Len Kraus, we have the great Dave Provost. Dave is, is, is someone that I had the opportunity and privilege to work very closely with while I was at the state of Vermont, uh, and over the years has just become a really dear friend and a mentor of mine. You know, I, I have very fond memories of the time that we had at the state, and I always really continue to be struck by Dave's ability to talk about captive insurance in such a simple, pragmatic way. I mean, he really, in my mind, has helped to demystify captive insurance, and I think in doing so really significantly benefited the reputation of the industry, which is impressive. I guess it goes without saying that it's been uh, just an amazing experience working with Dave. The one, I guess, adjective maybe that I would use to describe Dave is generous. You know, he's he was generous with his humor. When we were in stressful situations, he'd always know how to kind of lighten things up. Um, generous with his knowledge throughout, you know, I've worked with him for 20 years um, and learned so much from him. And I can honestly say in the 20 years, I've never heard a really negative, bad thing um, come out of his mouth. He's just a positive person who always tries to find solutions and not dwell on negativity. So he is going to be greatly missed. But at the same time, he has done an excellent job grooming the next, I guess, group of leaders within the department. And so I know that we're in good hands with Sandy. She's amazing. And Dan Pedersen and our whole team. And yourself. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it, it's bittersweet. You know, I'm excited to see what's going to happen in the future. But Dave um, definitely will be a missed part of our team. Another area I want to explore is kind of regulatory approaches. And then this is something coming from the UK market and Europe generally and myself. I find fascinating looking at you guys on this side of the pond and comparing them to uh, the regulators we have on our side of the pond. And Vermont and generally the US uh, captive regulatory scene more broadly has definitely has a a more pro-business collaborative approach to working with captive owners and and managers in the market. And and that's certainly the main difference than with uh, Europe and and also most offshore jurisdictions as well. I think it's a, a myth that offshore jurisdictions are easy regulators that's not the case at all right, right. and i'm not saying you guys are no. easy regulators either how do you make sure though you, you do get the the balance right between that collaborative pro business if you want to call it that approach 
and still being a, a responsible regulator that isn't going to have a whole load of failures on your hands. Right, right. We, we have a spectrum of regulation. So a, a single parent with a large healthy captive deserves and gets a pretty light touch. Mm. Uh, and then you go down the other end of the spectrum, a company that is uh, a risk retention group gets a pretty heavy touch. It's regulated, frankly, just like traditional insurance companies are. It boils down to a couple of questions that we always ask in the, in the application process and, and as we're going through with the company. Uh, one, who gets hurt if it goes wrong? Where's the resources if things go wrong? Is the party that's paying the premiums getting the benefit of the captive? And if that's all the same person, then what do we have to worry about? It's, it's really, it's, it's your money. You're doing something that is smart. You're actually adding a layer of regulation to something that you can already do yourself in most cases, uh, except that now you're doing it with a license and with somebody else watching you. So it's, it gives us a good feeling already that you're, you're doing something responsible by forming a captive instead of just self-insuring. and yeah. paying, paying. You can pay as you go and self-insure. That's always the cheapest because there's no other cost involved. It's just cut the check. Having a captive adds a layer of taxes. It adds a layer of regulatory costs. It adds a layer of time and investment in managing those risks. And so it, it deserves a light touch. And I can't remember to quote our, our mission statement right now, but it's follows something very much like that, is that we regulate captives based on their limited purpose. It is actually a genuine proportional approach. Absolutely. Which is what the people, our friends in Europe, uh, many of my friends in Europe are lobbying for. Right. There exists this idea of a principle of proportionality in very flowery European Union language, but it is an exercise to the degree that you're talking about. Uh, but, but But you say a big, healthy, single parent captive, you still have to measure and, and check that they are absolutely healthy. absolutely that's why we we still do we still do exams uh no matter what uh whether you're enron which was a big healthy captive at the time yeah uh your large oil company large hospital doesn't matter we still do exams of all our captives single parent to risk retention groups it can be a lighter touch but it's still we go in and check and make sure that things are as we accept, expect them to be and that's a lot of our regulation is we regulate by the plan you tell us what you're doing, and off you go. You go do it. If you change it, you let us know. So if we come in and do the exam and you've made all sorts of changes, well, it really wasn't didn't take much to let us know about that. So what's going on? I mean, the Enron captive was probably the only solvent part left of the business, right? Yeah. <laughs> at, at the end, it, it did its job and, and was able to pay the money back. And I think with all the single parent captives we've, we've had to liquidate, it was the same thing. The, the captive was just fine. It was, it was the, the customer was no longer there. What, what are the benefits of that approach, do you think, both to yourself and to the end customer or, or regulated entity, as in the captive and, and captive owner? Well, I think if you're a captive owner, part of the reason for having a captive is to prove to the rest of the people in your organization that you have a well-managed operation. And so having proper regulation, having financial reporting and audit and actuarial, and having an exam with a truly independent, because we're independent, we don't care much about what's going on other than are you a solvent and are you following your plan? And as long as you're doing that, then you get a gold star. You get the exam report that says everything's clean. If you're not, then you're going to get some comments. And so that it really helps convince upper management, all, all the reasons that you form a captive for in the first place to have that control, it's part of that control mechanism. 
you've been to uh, Luxembourg and the European yeah. uh, Captive Forum. We've hosted you there before. And you've, I imagine, spoken to some of your regulatory cousins um, in Dublin or Luxembourg or wherever. Are you surprised or, or miffed at all at the, at the, the more kind of standoffish approach of, of other captive regulators? And I am specifically talking about Europe, but it's not exclusively uh, that problem there. I, I am. And I found the same thing with China. Um, when uh, At one point, China was talking to us about how do we do captives, and so were a few other countries. And they were like, you let them do that? Um, <laughs> you know, and, and plus, they're not buying insurance from our traditional insurance companies anymore. You can't let them do that. That's that's hurting our market. And I had, I had long conversations with the Chinese regulator about trading dollars, about the inefficiency of handing over ins- money to an insurance company just to get it back tomorrow with a with an expected claim. Uh, it didn't make sense. I am surprised that, that other regulators don't have a, a similar approach to a single parent captive. Yeah. Um, because you can you can do almost everything you do with a captive without a captive. Yeah. And so again, they're adding they're they're being responsible. They're adding a layer of regulation and paying you for that privilege. So it is it does surprise me. I can't be miffed because I it's it's not in my on my turf or anything. But it's surprising sometimes that they that they don't accept that principle of proportionality. Glad you reminded me of that of that one because I hadn't, <laughs> hadn't seen that for a while. No, it doesn't. My opinion, it doesn't yeah, exist. <laughs> it, it came up a lot in you know in conversations with the IAIS, the International yeah. Association of Insurance Supervisors, about you know. It, not everybody deserves the same regulatory touch, uh, and so and we even have we have a we have a spectrum in the U.S. Even on the traditional side, you have a different regulatory approach for a single state insurance company than you do for a, a multi-state or, or nationwide insurance company. So it's a broad spectrum, and I think you have a lot of flexibility as a regulator to work with management on what's an appropriate touch. I mean, I will say there is there is a degree of optimism right now within FIRMA, the uh, Federation of European Risk Management Associations, and the community, captive community, that there is some progress being made on some solvency to reform regarding proportionality. It will never go as far as I think a lot of the captive market thinks it should, but we're hopeful of, of some progress in that in that regard. So I shouldn't badmouth the, the European regulators too much. Um, let's move on, Dave. At, at, at conferences such as this one, VCIA and, and others, and people like myself and journalists were always talking about you know, what the next big trend or area is for captives. And, and usually that is that is certain lines of insurance. So the past five or 10 years, a big one has been employee benefits, maybe even going back longer than 10 years. And we have certainly seen that area grow and, and develop. More recently, hot topics have been DNO, um, cyber, certainly that insurance market is only going one way, in my opinion, and captives are going to have to step in, uh, in even more so than they currently are doing. But I'm interested to ask the, the flip side of that, which is, have there ever been these kind of big um, excitements about uh, a new line of insurance or new product that's been widely tipped to, to be the next big thing, but has actually turned out just to be a really bad idea or just <laughs> never got off the ground or just didn't work after a few use cases? Yeah, I, I can't say any of, of them have turned out to be a bad idea. Okay. But there have been some that... There must be some bad ideas. Yeah, some, there, there are some bad ideas. And I, I hope, hopefully we haven't 
haven't licensed the bad ideas. Yeah. But there's been some that haven't quite worked out the way that people thought, um, and some with very mixed results. And I would say some of the employee benefits have been wi- widely. Yeah. Some of them just didn't work at all. Some of them work great. Um, in fact, I, I worked on a plan change today with an employee benefit program that was working fantastic. And so they, they were, you know, they had worked with the front company and they were taking a bigger share of the risks now because they had built up surplus and looked like it, it was going to make sense. Like with anything else, I guess it matters, the pricing matters. If you don't price the medical stop loss right or the employee benefits right, you can pay out a lot of money pretty quickly and get yourself in trouble. And we've had some companies that do that. And so that kind of goes back to our original, okay, who gets hurt if this goes wrong? Where's the capital if you need it um, to, to avoid any big problems? Cyber has almost been the same way. Uh, we've had companies, all right, we're putting cyber into a captive. At the same time, I'll get a letter, we're taking the cyber out of our captive. But I do have to say that we recently licensed a couple of agency captives for cyber, and they've taken off. It's still kind of early to tell, but they are selling more than they expected to. But an agency captive is one which you don't regulate like a single parent, do you? Because it has got mixed, it's got third-party risk in it, right? Right, it's got third-party risk, although in most cases we require the agency captive to be fronted. So that takes care of a lot of the risk too because the front requires collateral and security and so they're generally very secure. We've put into the law that we may require it, but so far we always have and really no reason not to. So lastly then, Dave, any particular highlights? I mean, obviously, I'm sure you've had lots and lots of happy memories from your uh, 33 years, I think, working in the captive business. Any particular moments or, or memories stand out to you? There's thousands. Um, you know, I've, I've worked with a lot of people and worked with them as they had kids, as I had my own kids too. So I, I've seen people, I've seen seen babies grow up. Some of them are now working in captive yeah, insurance. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> uh, including, including my son. Uh, he, he works for, for Marsh and captives. Um, we've had some, I played golf in the snow with a guy from Florida. One of my best memories is, is one of my first exams with Sandy. We went to, to San Diego right after 9-11. So we were practically the only people in the plane, the only people in the hotel. So we, we had the wedding suites separate, but we had, you, know, we, <laughs> you want a big suite while you're here? Sure, because you're the only people in the hotel. So we had a blast. And you know, the state pays you a, a daily rate for your meals. We ate, our, we ate a week's worth of meals in, in one night. So we, we, we had fun doing our work, and then we worked hard during the day. But and that kind of, maybe that's maybe that's the whole thing with captives is we do work hard all day long. Yeah. But we kind of tend to have fun and we we know a lot of the people. Going to the conferences is like a reunion every time. Yeah, particularly this year as well. Particularly this year, but uh, yeah, because after after a two year hiatus, but it is you know you see the same people and I, I had a talk with with uh, Gary Munsterman at uh, the conference earlier this year. World Captive Forum said, yeah, we've never done business together." But we still connect every, every conference, and so we, we know who we are and, and you know a lot of people that you may not have actually done business with. But you know, and I guess that's what networking is all about. When you need somebody with that skill, you know where to go. Well, Dave, it's, uh, I've got plenty of happy memories in my short term uh, covering this industry and, and covering it with you in it. And you were always a huge help to me, both when I was at Captive Review and, and now doing the podcast as well. So thank you for that. And uh, thank you as well for coming back onto the Global Captive Podcast. Thank you. Glad to do it. Stay safe, stay well, and see you next time, Captives. <laughs>